0: Welcome to Optimal, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Dickon Weatherby, and this podcast and my website all focus on one thing, and that's the quest for optimal health. Our goal is to help you to help your patients achieve optimal health so they can experience an optimal life. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify. And also make sure to go over to OptimalDx.com and check out our resources on the site. Now, without any further delay, is today's episode. Hi there, welcome everybody. Dr. Dick and Weatherby here from Optimal DX. Welcome to Optimal the podcast. I'm joined as usual by Beth Allen in Naples, Florida. How's life in Naples?
1: Beautiful, great. Sounds, like you, sounds <laughs> like you
0: just had a little getaway, which is nice.
1: Yes, even two days was like seven days in work in person's time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. We got on the call today and Beth like, you sound sound a little bit stuffed up. So yeah, we've got, (laughs) it's end of May here in the Rogue Mm -hmm. Valley in Southern Oregon. And I can look out over my valley and see just a haze of pollen. So I think I'm a little congested and trying not to resort to antihistamines. But Mm. anyway, luckily we have lots at our disposal to deal with allergies. So anyway, we're not (laughs) going to talk about allergies today. We've (laughs) (laughs) Dang. So we've got kind of four topics. We're going to hit blood glucose regulation with a brand new index that Beth Allen and I have been researching and looking into. We just added into the ODX platform. Super excited about that. So we'll talk about the triglyceride glucose index. And then a new biomarker called serum glycoprotein acetylation, glyc A or glyc A. Pretty cool systemic inflammation marker only available from LabCore at this point, but we'll talk a little bit about that. And then we'll kind of dive into some of our blog posts and Beth's been writing away. So if, if you don't know about our <laughs> blogs, go over to OptimalDX.com. We have two blogs. We have Optimal, the blog, which is kind of our sort of mainstream is not the right word, but just sort of less research. Summary, <laughs> Summary <laughs> stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good way to put it, but great stuff. So go over there. And if you want to get a weekly update on our blog post. But this this is a pretty cool blog post about sweating. <laughs> sweating can deplete electrolytes like, and minerals. So we always think about sweat as being kind of a good thing, you know, saunas and stuff. We also have to remember that we can lose vital micronutrients. And mm-hmm. most of our patients are probably not that replete in micronutrients. So mm-hmm. especially as we head into the summer months, Beth Allen down in Florida, sweating it away in, oh, uh, yes. <laughs> in the oh, tropics. Oh, and it's awful. pretty darn hot here in the Rogue Valley. We'll hit 100 degrees oh. 10 15 days during the year. So it's already oh. started to heat up a little bit. And then sort of a little tangential part of sweating is I want to talk a little bit about biomarkers for elite athletes. My son is a professional athlete and I've been doing <laughs> his blood work since he was probably 14, 14, 15 years old, he's now oh, 25, wow. so for 10 years. <laughs> so I've been following his blood biomarkers. He's in the off season. So let's talk a little bit about what biomarkers we can run there. So that's kind of our agenda. And Beth's going to kind of dive into the research. But I did want to talk about the triglyceride glucose index. So this is a relatively recent development in the field of medical science. You can find it, you can Google it, and there are various different ways of measuring it. But we do want to talk about in a few minutes the differences between. The calculation that we use at ODX, which is, seems to be the one that most research is based on. In you can talk a little bit about that in a few moments. Mm-hmm. And then there's another calculation. They're very, very similar. If you can remember back to your <laughs> algebra, it's where you put the parenthesis <laughs> around mm-hmm. multiplications. So it's very, very yeah. important.
1: Anyway, Parenthesis and the emphasis,
0: <laughs> the parenthesis and the emphasis. So okay. this is a, a mathematical construct that reflects both triglycerides, which is a type of fat, and glucose, blood sugar levels, which is used as a marker for insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome, both of course, which are related to the development of cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes. You know, in Optimal DX, we're all about how do we use blood chemistry and other tools at our disposal to identify trends. Are you trending (laughs) towards insulin resistance? Are you trending towards the development of cardiovascular disease? Are you trending towards prediabetes? Are you trending towards what Beth Ellen likes to call Mm prediabetes? Or just straight up type 2 diabetes. So this index is really super helpful. So this isn't a ratio. So it uses a natural logarithm of the multiplication of triglycerides in milligrams per deciliter multiplied by fasting glucose also in milligrams per deciliter. So for those Mm -hmm. of you over in standard international land, don't worry, just put the units into the software or Mm -hmm. then we're going to have the calculator actually up at optimal TX2. And then once you've done that calculation, you divide it by two.
1: And it is fasting even for triglycerides too. And I've heard a little bit of noise about maybe they don't have to have fasting triglycerides, but definitely for this you'd want fasting triglycerides and I think you'd always want fasting. Yeah.
0: So I did kind of a little dive here because I'm always interested in the physiology behind these things. Mm -hmm. I kind of did a little read about the physiology behind the index is rooted in the biology of triglycerides and glucose metabolism and their interplay with insulin. So obviously this is a very easily measured index because I just did a quick review, Beth, of how many biomarkers. We've got, I think, over half a million blood tests now in our system. And I would say about 95% of them have fasting glucose and about 92% of them had triglycerides. So this is a very easily obtained set of biomarkers. It's not like the HOMA2 where you've got to do fasting insulin or C-peptide. No, this is Mm -hmm. very, very bioavailable. And so we're looking at the interplay with insulin, a hormone, obviously, that plays a crucial role in controlling the levels of both molecules in the body. So, triglycerides, type of blood fat, when you eat, your body converts calories. And this is something that people are always kind of, I think, a little confused about. It's like, oh, you know, don't do a high fat diet. But when you take fat out of food, as you know, you have to replace it with something that makes it taste good. And a lot of times it's mm-hmm. been uh, carbohydrates. Well. And of course, those carbohydrates, the body has to deal with them because you can't just burn 1,500 calories and cool. it has to be stored. So, where does it get stored? The liver does it and stores it in fat cells as triglycerides. Mm-hmm. There's a whole biochemical process we don't have to necessarily get into. <laughs> but high triglycerides sign metabolic syndrome along with high blood pressure, high blood sugar and abnormal cholesterol levels. And then we have glucose. Glucose is the type of sugar that the body uses for energy. Glucose in the blood comes from the food you eat but also don't forget the liver will also create glucose through gluconeogenesis and then in response to that the pancreas will produce insulin helps the cells absorb that glucose, sort of like the gatekeeper, it like opens the doors for the receptors to allow glucose to come into the cell. Anyway, so that's the interplay with these two. So insulin resistance often coexists with high triglyceride levels. They share Mm -hmm. a very similar pathophysiological basis. You often see that in obesity, metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes. And so I think this index is really cool because it leverages those relationships between two very cost-effective and reliable biomarkers, we're all measuring triglyceride, fasting, glucose, fasting, and provides us with a surrogate marker of insulin resistance and metabolic dysfunction. So that's kind of our lead in. So Beth, I wanted to talk a little bit about that equation. So the equation is, like we mentioned, is a natural logarithm of the triglyceride, fasting triglyceride and the fasting glucose multiplied together, divided by two. So walk us through some of the research that you picked up on this and maybe focusing our attention on this concept of insulin resistance because I think we do have some good tools like we have the HOMA2 calculator built into Mm -hmm. the software. So where does this index fit do you think in sort of the pantheon of tools that we can use to sort of help uncover potential insulin resistance in our patients?
1: Well having it be such a good indicator of insulin resistance that I think everybody should have it. Just in case there is some indication of insulin resistance, which, as we know, can develop into metabolic syndrome and then type 2 diabetes and then cardiovascular disease. And then all of a sudden people say, well, how did this all happen? Yeah. <laughs> it happened way back when, when your triglyceride glucose index was elevated and no one noticed it. Mm-hmm. So, right, it goes right to the foundation of this cardiometabolic dysfunction that has become so common in the country. So I think it should be a baseline or everybody should get a baseline value for the triglyceride glucose index and then monitor any elevations very closely. And from there, you can go further and measure inflammation, check on someone's diet. What is their physical activity like? All those things that come together to create pre-diabetes and then Mm -hmm, diabetes. mm -hmm. So I think it's a really good basic tool and it is simple not math wise. I don't like math. So I wouldn't say it's easy to calculate in my head, but it's easy to obtain that value. And then just in the software, especially plug it into your full comprehensive evaluation of blood glucose regulation and cardiovascular risk. So it's a real basic tool. And if you measure and find out someone has insulin resistance, you have to take the next steps and evaluate their whole picture. And the research is saying it's actually a better predictor of insulin resistance than leptin is, than the visceral adiposity index is, than the ApoB, ApoA1 ratio, than the triglyceride to HDL cholesterol ratio, and even other lipid parameters that we depend on, and including HOMA IR and just triglycerides by themselves, and of course, weight gain. Because someone could have, you know, not have weight gain, but have an elevated triglyceride glucose index. So you have to look at this along with the other parameters. And when you put the whole picture together and it looks like someone's trending towards Mm pre-pre-pre-diabetes, then you want to catch them early, right? Before they fall. So they do find that nutrition lifestyle changes will improve the index because it improves triglycerides and glucose levels. So it's going to improve the index. And it's some of the steps that people have got to take to prevent these chronic diseases that are really, to me, cardiometabolic Mm, mm -hmm. imbalances. So when you're looking obviously at a
0: a shifting an index like this, you kind of have to go back to the two biomarkers that you're looking at and the basic dietary recommendations around, you know, limiting potentially refined sugars and carbohydrates.
1: Excesses. uh,
0: Excesses, yeah. Increasing Mm -hmm. omega-3 fatty acids, eating more fiber. Mm -hmm. So really the dietary change. And we've got some great articles on that as well. Is there anything that stood out to you dietarily or even supplement-wise that might...
1: I have to say, oh, sorry about that, because I find that the Mediterranean diet to me has come out to be the best approach Mm -hmm. for many of these issues, cardiometabolic issues, especially, and I find that it's very balanced and it can be adjusted, you know, to personal preferences or personal needs. So we had that article on the sustainable Mediterranean diet Mm -hmm. pyramid, and I thought that was a great guide. And I think it simplifies things. I'm not one, unless it's metabolically needed or medically needed to restrict carbohydrates down to a level that causes ketogenesis, Mm -hmm. unless it's or ketosis unless again, it's medically indicated because I find that a little bit dangerous. People cut out so many healthy foods that they end up in worse trouble. And alcohol, can even alter insulin metabolism and things like that. So I don't like to restrict too much. I find the Mediterranean diet, a very nice balance, whole foods, plenty of plant-based foods, seafood, omega-3s. It even includes activity and hydration if you go to our blog article. So to me, the simple balanced approach, and I find the Mediterranean, sustainable Mediterranean, diet does that. So that is usually the Mm go-to for me. And then you can adjust it down the road. If someone had cancer or intractable seizures, you know, the ketogenic diet has a place, but I think I find it a medical diet. I almost never recommend it just to the vast Mm -hmm. general public, you know, and then making sure people have enough protein, have enough micronutrients. Are they sweating? (laughs) And yeah. are they losing? We'll talk about that later. So, but the basic go-to I like is the Mediterranean diet
0: pyramid. Yeah. So yeah, we've got a great blog post on Optool, the blog around that. So you could just go search Mediterranean and it'll come up and it's a pretty cool pyramid. And mostly this is an audio podcast. We can't show the pyramid, but <laughs> it's very cool, you know, especially when you look at it next to kind of the traditional FDA mm, food pyramid yes. of the nineties. That pyramid should have been turned upside down or, oh, I don't <laughs> no. know, but anyway, cool. Well, this is the triglyceride glucose index is in the software. We will be adding a page to our calculators page. So yeah, we do have a calculators page on, on Optimal DX 2 where a lot of these calculators are, are built in. So you can just go in and do that if you don't want to use the software. We are reporting on this. And yeah, very cool, very cool index hey. for us to be following. Thank you for your hard work. So yeah, the research, go to the research blog. We've got a very in-depth blog on this with you know maybe 15 different uh, research studies that Beth has evaluated and kind of get a deep dive into it. So mm-hmm. very cool. All right, switching gears to Glyce A, serum glycoprotein acetylation. So this was a relatively new biomarker for me. I'm not sure about for you, Beth, but I think one of our customers said, hey, have you ever thought about adding this? And so we took a look at it and went, wow, mm-hmm. this is a pretty cool one. So we wanted mm-hmm. to bring this to people's attention. Unfortunately, only LabCorp here in the US is measuring As far this. as
1: we can tell, yeah. As
0: far as we can tell. Mm-hmm. Quest, if you're listening, Get on the ball <laughs> yeah, and make ding, sure you ding. get this book. So this is robust systemic inflammation that reflects multiple inflammatory pathways and glycosylations of acute phase proteins thus reflecting chronic low-grade inflammation. I feel like we've got great tools, a little bit like insulin resistance and blood sugar dysregulation. We've got great tools, so this is just another way of evaluating and adding to our ability to drill down on inflammation, which is very much a part of that cardiometabolic problems that we were just talking about earlier. We've obviously got high-sensitive C-reactive protein, we've got uric acid levels, we've got a straight-up C-reactive protein. And we've Mm -hmm. done plenty of blog posts around inflammation. (laughs) So if you want to dive into that, boy, yeah, Mm -hmm. have at it. But tell us a little bit about some of the research that you came up with around an elevated glycate, just so that we know what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. We like to see at ODX a range of between 100 to 300 micromoles per liter. Conventional lab range is 0 to 400. So, yeah, definitely keeping that top level, Though 300 would be great. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about some of the research that you dove into and what were you uncovering?
1: Well, in some of the research we will mention other research and ultimately I found a nice summary and they found that an association between elevated glycae and cardiovascular disease was demonstrated in several studies, large studies, CathGen, Prevent, the Women's Health Study, MESA and the Jupiter Study. So it's actually been in the research phase, it's being utilized and hopefully... Soon it would be utilized more in the clinical, you know, practitioner level because it seems like a very, very good marker and it's, it reflects chronic low-grade inflammation even when HSCRP might not pick it up. So they're finding it a more sensitive marker than HSCRP. And the glyce, you only need one reading to make some clinical evaluation mm-hmm. or make a clinical evaluation. Whereas HSCRP really is supposed to be, have two measures taken two weeks apart to be able to really confirm and say, yes, this is a reflection of chronically elevated inflammation. So glycate is only one draw and the HSCRP would take two draws two weeks apart. So it's even you know more convenient as well as being more sensitive. Also, the HSCRP will rise early in an acute phase response, but the glycate seems to be generated a little bit later in the acute phase response. So it's shown more of a sustained response. And I thought it was really, really interesting because when you see elevations in glycate, you also see elevations in other inflammatory markers like TNF-alpha, fibrinogen, as you said, HSCRP, serum amyloid A, LPPLA-2, IL-6, and even microbial peptides. But what was especially interesting is it's associated with elevated circulating white blood cells, especially neutrophils. And I thought this was so interesting because neutrophils produce two of the major proteins that contribute to an elevated glyce A concentration. That's alpha-1 acid glycoprotein and haptoglobin. So when you have neutrophils, you have this initial, you know, first responder immune response generating all those neutrophils and they are generating a lot of the proteins that increase the glyce A. So I think when you see an elevated glyce A, you really are looking at an inflammatory immune response. So uh, that's something to look at too. If you have an elevated neutrophil and an elevated glycine and you start to put the pieces together, you say, yeah, this person really is inflamed. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was so, it just looked like such a good marker. And then some of the research said, well, is this the next hemoglobin A1C? Because as we know, hemoglobin A1C reflects glycation or glycosylation of hemoglobin. Well, this is reflecting glycosylation of other proteins, and it might be something that should be measured as frequently as hemoglobin A1c, especially with its association with cardiovascular disease. There was one very interesting study. They found a strong independent or inverse association between elevated glycae and cardiovascular health indicators. So when glycee was high, these life simple seven, they call them, were altered. So the Life Simple 7 health and behavioral indicators, we talk about them all the time. Diet, physical activity, BMI, blood pressure, smoking status, and the levels of total cholesterol and fasting blood glucose. Even though we know there's much more to total cholesterol, but yeah, that is one yeah. of the seven. So it was interesting. Participants, they found that those were the optimal Life Simple 7 scores of 12 to 14, in this case, maintain the mean glyc A of 282 micromoles per liter versus over 300 or 312 micromoles per liter in those with a low health score. Mm. So there, it's really something that you can observe and also something that you could track. They found for every one unit increment in the LS7 scores, the A levels had decreased by five micromoles per liter. That was Benson 2018. We have all the references listed. If you go to the blog, you'll find all the details on these studies as well. So I thought that was nice, you know? And then there was another study that showed those with prediabetes, it was only 169 sedentary individuals, but they had prediabetes and a six-month structured diet, exercise and lifestyle program reduced glycee, reduced visceral adiposity and associated risk of developing type 2 diabetes. So you find in that pre-diabetes stage, and I like the pre-pre-diabetes stage to address this, but you can reverse it. You can reduce people's risk of developing type 2 diabetes. Don't wait till they finally have it and go, oh, boom, you crossed the threshold. Now you're diabetic. Now we labeled you. Now we're going to take all these other steps. So this glycemia yeah, could be a definite indicator of increased risk of type 2 diabetes, which then increases your cardiovascular risk. It's a really, really nice marker. So yeah, Quest Diagnostics, if you're listening, we'd love to thing, see it.
0: Yeah, I'm wondering, you mentioned the, sort of the, the neutrophils role and neutrophils mm-hmm. are actually part of our inflammatory measurements mm-hmm. in, in the software, which is kind of cool. But one of the biomarkers that you've worked pretty hard on is the neutrophil lymphocyte ratio. And I wonder obviously that's another marker that we have easily available. I think mm-hmm. it must be in the 90% that almost all blood biomarkers that we're measuring include a CBC to some extent. So we're measuring neutrophils, we're measuring lymphocytes, we're measuring total white mm-hmm. blood cell counts. We're getting the absolute counts, we're getting the percentages. So I wonder if, you know because obviously an increased neutrophil lymphocyte ratio reflects cell-mediated inflammatory response. Mm-hmm. Kind of cool. I like kind of how mm-hmm. This biomarker glyce kind of ties into that as well and sort mm-hmm. of provides some of that biochemical background on why some of these biomarkers that you might look at and go, why would neutrophils be mm-hmm. pro-inflammatory? <laughs> well, you know, obviously they're first line defense against, against infections, so pretty cool. Anything else to jump to you about
1: glycae?: Let's see, let's see. It can be improved again with diet and exercise, lifestyle programs, Kind of the same old story where we talk about mm. diet and lifestyle when you optimize them or optimize them, you can, <laughs> right? You can, you can optimize and lower your risk of cardiovascular disease. It's yeah. simply bo- it simply boils down to that. Yeah. Very cool. Oh, also, I, I will mention that we didn't say before, that it also is seen or elevated levels are seen in autoimmune disorders like lupus, psoriasis, mm-hmm. arthritis, and then again, of course, an infection. And also there's a decreased gut microbiota diversity seen and immune activation, including an inflammatory bowel disease when levels are elevated. So really, if anybody is seeking medical health help or intervention for anything, or health intervention, I'd rather call it, yeah. this would be something to take a look at. If they have an inflammatory issue, then absolutely this should be looked at and monitored, especially when you can see positive results over time when you adopt a healthy lifestyle and diet.
0: All right, let's talk about some of the blog posts that we've got up recently. And this was a cool one talking about how sweating can deplete electrolytes and minerals. And as we're getting into the heat of the summer, mm-hmm. since late May, sweating plays a physiological role, obviously, in cooling down the body can support detoxification. But there's stuff in our sweat. That's why when sweat gets into your mouth, it tastes salty. It's got minerals <laughs> yeah. in it. It's got micronutrients mm-hmm. in it. It's got electrolytes. So yeah, be really careful, making sure that if you are exercising out in the heat or if you are experiencing some excessive sweating to help cool down mm-hmm. the body, that you do pay attention to this. Talk a little bit about some of the nutrients that are lost because this is interesting to me because we, yeah. we always think and focus on maybe some of the larger, the sodiums Minimals, and, yep. and the calciums and the chlorides and things like that. But there are some micronutrients and even some B vitamins that mm-hmm. come on through the sweat. So Yeah, let's dive into this a little bit.
1: Well, like you said, B vitamins, people, water-soluble vitamins, people forget about that. Calcium can be lost through sweat, as you say, chloride, chromium, copper, even iodine. And a lot of people don't get enough iodine. You know, people aren't using a lot of iodized salt. And I want to mention, I'll mention this to a user too later on, but like Himalayan pink salt doesn't always contain iodine or enough iodine. It's not iodized. And a lot of times you don't get it from, you know, it doesn't come automatically iodized. So Himalayan pink salt might not be a good source of iodine. People tend to cut out table salt, which is iodized. And a lot of people don't get enough iodine if they don't eat seafood. So you're losing it through sweat. And that's not one of the things a lot of people replete. So it can be important. I actually put a couple of drops in a, you know, three gallons, my drinking water container, two or three drops of iodine in there. And it's in the good multi that I take. And I do use an iodized salt, a good salt, it's called, with other minerals in it. So iodine was one that was like, oh yeah, it is lost through sweat. We have to mention that some iron could be lost. Magnesium can be lost. Um, Potassium, we know that too. Selenium, of course we know sodium, but even vitamin C and even zinc can be lost with sweating. And a lot of water, I didn't even list the water, but yes, of course you can lose a lot of water. I think it was like up to six cups an hour with heavy athletic activity. That's a liter and a half of water lost. So If you're losing that much water through sweat, you are definitely losing your minerals. So definitely have a good hydration, electrolyte replenishing drink before and after I would do it, but certainly after when you know you've lost those minerals and then supplement as needed, check your blood, you know, even serum levels, give us some information Mm -hmm. and you can't afford to be insufficient in minerals. As we know, they are functioning so many metabolic activities in the body and across our vitamins too, vitamin C, B vitamins, things that some people don't get enough of. So yeah, paying attention to that and read that you know, we have a whole blog that lists a little bit more information anyway in the references for Tell that. Me,
0: what's your favorite go to electrolyte replacement? I mean, I do hot yoga.
1: I make my own. Oh, you make
0: your own. Well, that's kind of what I'm I'm asking because for
1: convenience' (laughs) sake,
0: it's often so easy to reach for the little tub and put a couple of little scoops in. Check the ingredients. Make sure it doesn't have crap in it. Crap. uh, Walk us through. I mean, I'm always fascinated, and this is kind of like why you and I like talking to practitioners and in some of the interviews that we do. What are you doing in your own life to, I mean, obviously you live in Florida, it's hot and humid in the summer and lovely, it in the winter, but it can be pretty bad, right? So yeah, what's your favorite recipe? And maybe I'll convince you to maybe <laughs> post up and post it up on the blog.
1: It's almost basic. We have a green lemonade recipe I put up there. So what I see, I do use, well, I make my own lemonade rice. If you can use fresh lemons, that's awesome. I will use sometimes bottled lemon juice. But so purified water, lemon juice, I use lemon essential oil as well. And I also use a little lemon stevia, mm-hmm. the natural stevia sure, drops out of so lemon flavored. But I use a base and I use willed water and willed water is a kind of a weird thing. I think people really should go and look at the 60 minutes coverage of it. It's very alkalizing. And the tests that they did showed that it wasn't toxic, but it's not like there's a lot of studies or research on it. It had just been used for so long in South Dakota, it started there and it is full of trace minerals. And so you just take two ounces of concentrate to one gallon of water. And I couldn't say, well, this is exactly how many micrograms Mm. of this nutrient, but I was pretty convinced after seeing that video and reading a little bit more on it and how much, you know, the trace minerals that are in there and it was tested and it's considered safe. And so I use that as my base for my green lemonade. If you're really, really exercising a lot, then there are some liquid electrolyte replacements. And I was actually looking for my little bottle, but I don't think it's in the room with me. So you heard things, some background noise. (laughs) (laughs) I could go get it though, if you want to chat for a minute. It's in the cupboard in the kitchen. So if you really, I don't know, anybody has some issues and they lose a lot of fluid different ways and you have to replace your electrolytes at certain times, then I go to this liquid drop It's very salty. And even has zinc in it. And then I just put a couple of drops couple on of drops my in. tongue. And I drink it down, drink water oh, down. Okay. Yeah. Pop- yeah, But that, pop- that pop- is a specialized, tongue. you know, I could go get it if you want to.
0: <laughs> yeah, why don't you do that? Now, what I'll do is I'll okay. talk a little bit about athletics. And then if we have time at the end, I'd love to. There was a, an AMA question that we had around PPIs. And you wrote an article in the blog around the downside of PPIs. So maybe if we have time, well, Beth is off looking in our kitchen. I'm going to talk a little bit about something that's pretty close to my wheelhouse here is My son is a professional athlete and has been a high-performance athlete for many years. I've been monitoring and measuring his blood work since he was 14. So he's in the off-season. We just did some blood work on him. I wrote a short article on sort of biomarkers for testing high-performance athletes and recognizing that the demands of a long professional season, what that does to human physiology, it's quite remarkable. You would look at blood work of a professional athlete, and if you looked at it through the lens that we're looking at it through ODX, you go, wow, this guy's pretty darn dysfunctional. But it's not. It's like they've tuned, yeah, fine-tuned chairman. their bodies to be these kind of like machines almost. I hate to use the word machine when we're talking about a body, but you know, their their liver enzymes are a lot higher. But I'm pretty positive that, you know, the long-term ramifications, if you're not dealing with some of the baseline issues around correcting and, and monitoring the ana- anabolic-catabolic ratios. Is also supremely important. So, making sure in the off season they're about it's about building up. In the season, they don't really have time to build up, and it's about how are your reserves. So, when you are going through your muscle, that you have enough muscle there to make it mm-hmm. through the season. So, anyway, we measure things. Obviously, oh, some are very basic. We measure them all anyway, but sort of looking at them through the lens of an athlete. You know, hemoglobin, hematocrit, obviously part of a CBC. Really looking at how efficiently is the body carrying oxygen. Think about it. You know, he's a hockey player, so he has to, you know, do a 45 second shift. You think, well, you know, being out on the ice for 45 seconds. But he is full on. These athletes are full on for 45 mm-hmm. seconds. They are absolutely toasted at the end of it. So they're probably in anaerobic respiration a lot of the time. So how much lactic acid is being produced. So really, you know, working with them to improve hemoglobin and levels so that their endurance and aerobic capacities is super important tagging along with that, looking at iron and ferritin levels, you know, these markers assess iron status. And again, if you're looking about oxygenation of tissues, mm-hmm. yeah, you've got to have enough iron. And we always say, well, you know, men shouldn't be supplementing with iron. But I've seen that ferritin levels are often very low in professional mm-hmm. athletes, and as are iron levels. And when you start putting some small amount of iron back into the body, you get tremendous benefits from that. But obviously, making sure that you're doing it in You know, don't just give it to them, but monitor them. Stay
1: optimal. (laughs) Stay optimal,
0: right. (laughs) Vitamin D, his vitamin D levels are really low. He's in a rink all day. You know, he's Uh not out in the sunshine. So really important, obviously, for bone health, you know, immune function, muscle function. You're traveling, you're in airplanes, you're in locker rooms, you know, you're surrounded by microbes all the time. You're drinking out of common water bottles. You know, so these things that you don't often think about when you think about professional athletes is. Yeah, they're around a whole load of different people in and out of different scenarios, and their immune systems have to be top notch. So vitamin D is obviously extremely important. Looking at C-reactive protein levels, hsCRP. I think this glyca might be an interesting biomarker to follow. Mm-hmm. You know, looking at inflammation. You know, how well does this athlete respond to the dings and the dents and the bumps and the bruises and the checking and all that kind of stuff? So how quickly can they recover and what's the potential injury risk that is associated with that. Another very interesting biomarker to look at is creatine kinase enzyme that's released into the bloodstream following muscle damage. You know, so at the end of the season, it's interesting to see, you know, CPK levels are really relatively quite high. And it's like, well, the body's recovering from being beaten up for 60, 70 games <laughs> in the year. Looking at testosterone and cortisol stress, also that anabolic capacity here. Looking at that hormonal balance, it's interesting to me, I've done some panels on a few athletes, and you know, you think a 25-foot, 30-year-old athlete in the prime of their life, testosterone levels should be in the upper uh, percentiles, it's oftentimes not. And this is hmm. a little tricky because obviously you can't start supplementing with testosterone because you don't want to bypass their normal production of testosterone, so you start having to look at uh, testosterone utilization. Is the sex hormone binding globulin high? What's the ratio between the bioavailability of testosterone versus the free testosterone? And then also looking at ways to decrease aromatization, are they moving it more into estradiol? So, there's lots of little things that we can do to sort of tweak testosterone levels cortisol. Oftentimes, their sleep is very disrupted. You can imagine if you're playing a late evening game, your stress levels are really high. You can't go to bed at nine and have a nice restful sleep. You're up till one in the morning. And then oftentimes they're on the road again. So their cortisol levels Mm -hmm. are all over the place. Lactate dehydrogenase, lactate, obviously we're talking about lactic respiration, their anaerobic respiration when you're really pushing yourself hard. That's really important. What is their anaerobic threshold? What's the training intensity? So we're moving into the off-season here. What is his capacity to be able to train at a high level? I'm looking at BUN and creatinine, obviously looking at kidney function, but they can also show us about dehydration. This is a marker that we look at in ODX as well, and also overtraining. So especially very, very important here in the off season, if you're working with athletes to make sure that, you know, you are measuring whether or not they're overtraining. You know, CPK levels might go up as well, and they might have more inflammation if they're pretty uh, hitting the the gym pretty hard. So just pay attention to that. Glucose and insulin levels, you know, then we're looking at HOMA2 scores, you know, what's their level of insulin sensitivity? What's their output of insulin with a HOMA2B score? Typically, you're not seeing insulin resistance because these guys fine-tune metabolic Again, I hate to use the word machines, but mm-hmm. I don't know why that comes to mind. And then looking at lipid profiles, assessing cholesterol and triglyceride levels. So obviously, each athlete is in a very different position. So he's a hockey player. So his needs and demands for training and conditioning his body are very different than you know, maybe a basketball player or a football player. Or, mm-hmm. you know. Anyways, but it's kind of interesting. Blood work can well. really give you an, an amazing window into not just kind of what their season was like and the impact it's had on the body, but sort of how can we best set up from a supplemental dietary lifestyle capacity mm-hmm. so that training can be a peak. So anyway, that's pretty cool.
1: Did you get your... I found it. You know, yes. I found it.
0: So yes. <laughs> jumping in late into the podcast, Beth Ellen disappeared oh, into the kitchen to find her electrolyte formula. So <laughs> all right, take it away.
1: So this, the one that I have that I chose is Elite E-L-E-T-E electrolyte citralite add-in it's called, and it's really salty. I'm sorry, if you add it to something else, it's not going to taste very good, but you know, you get over that pretty quickly. If you need it, you need it. So this particular one has, first of all, it was manufactured in a CGMP compliant facility. Well, that's always good. That's good manufacturing process or practices that the fda oversees and says well whatever you say is going into this product had better be in that product in the the amounts that you uh, say so i think that is always a good thing so this one actually has in it has zinc let me go to the list here sorry about that starts with seawater purified water low sodium mineral concentrate citric acid potassium chloride and zinc sulfate and then it lists on the nutrition facts specifically and this is just in like a 3 ml or 0.6 teaspoon serving that you mix into something else. Has 48 milligrams of magnesium, 2 milligrams of zinc, 426 milligrams of chloride, 123 milligrams of sodium and 135 milligrams of potassium. And I don't put that into the lemonade. I don't think it would taste very good. Mm -hmm. But when you really do need to replete your electrolytes, get a little more more serious (laughs) than the green lemonade. And the green lemonade also has chlorophyll in it, which I forgot to mention. Has a little magnesium in there. Chlorophyll always does. But this one extra supplement is if anybody is, you know, athletic or extending their physical activity beyond 30 to 60 minutes then you most likely are going to need some repletion. And I like that one. It's very convenient. They have a little bottle and a larger bottle that you can refill the little bottle with. And I just keep it up in the cupboard. And if I, you know, in my case, I don't use it a lot now unless I really need it. But like my George, if he's out and sweating like crazy out in the yard and comes in and I just know he's depleted, I'll push some of that on him along with some green lemonade too. So It's definitely something to pay close attention to, but not to overdo, right? Because minerals, they can build up and the kidney has to try to get rid of them. And if you have any kidney issues, you have to, you know, be very careful about mineral supplementation. But when you don't have enough minerals and you have to replete them and and again, stay optimal, monitor, you know, even if it's Mm -hmm. every six months, if you have any questions about it, take a look at your serum levels. In some cases, red blood cell levels, some cases, even white blood cell level testing Mm -hmm. can be done for nutrients. So- but yeah, it's cool. definitely, definitely important.
0: Let's Yay. finish up by talking about PPIs, protein mm. pump inhibitors.
1: Talk so, about nutrient deficiencies.
0: Yeah, talk about <laughs> nutrient deficiencies. A little bit of a downer topic, but it is amazing <laughs> to me. Obviously, we're in the nutritional, naturopathic, functional medicine side of things. So I think that a lot of us are aware that protein pump inhibitors are probably not really very good things for our patients to be on. Mm. So we'll talk about some of the, the adverse side effects. But it is amazing to me how many people are taking these. Mm-hmm. They were first, and this is some of the stuff that you put into the blog post here. So they were really first, I think, came on the market to treat you know, pretty serious conditions, you know, mm-hmm. dangerous that ulcers,
1: mm-hmm. Zollinger-Ellison
0: mm-hmm. syndrome, which, you know, they've become widely prescribed. They're now over-the-counter mm-hmm. for indigestion and heartburn. And I think as practitioners, we need to be aware of the physiological and biochemical ramifications of taking something like this and and what mm-hmm. happens downstream. Because as we are taught in my trainings, you know, digestion, absorption, utilization of nutrients, digestion is a north to south process. It starts actually in your mm-hmm. brain, triggering the, you know, salivary reflexes. Why, you know, I'm looking forward to going to, to Italy this summer, because, you know, when you go to restaurants, they'll put out these... Uh, little aperitifs and things that are sort of mm-hmm. designed to kind of get your salivary juices going and turning mm-hmm. on your digestive system. But, you know, if you start messing around with stomach acid, boy, can that have some mm-hmm. big problems. So this is an article that you wrote um, called The Downside of PPIs. It's in our Optimal mm-hmm. blog. Do you have it in front of you? Some of the some, yeah. of, some of the serious side effects. So there's some pretty yeah. cool articles. These are recent articles, research papers, 2021 mm-hmm. Two of them were in t- 2021, one was in 2016.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Really like looking at, hey, you know what? This isn't just candy that you're popping like a Tums. Not that mm-hmm. anybody should be popping Tums. But it's like, you know, these are serious drugs and they have serious yes. health implications. So let's finish on just some serious adverse side effects.
1: <laughs> okay, warning, warning, yeah, warning Will Robinson. Yeah. Oh, well, right away, like I went to highlight the ones that I thought, wow, really struck me. And there's so many of them. So bear with us. Cardiovascular events, like myocardial infarction and stroke. And these are, again, published papers that list the side effects or downside of PPIs. So cardiovascular events, GI infections like C. difficile especially, but other Mm -hmm. GI infections and SIBO, which is small intestine bacterial overgrowth, can be a side effect or due to PPI use, especially extended PPI use, right? They're only meant for short term. Read the label carefully. Uh, Even coronavirus infections and respiratory infections they found were associated with PPIs. Decreased bone min- mineral density because they can cause hypocalcemia, hypomagnesemia, the reduced absorption of these minerals. Again, dysbiosis in the GI tract. Electrolyte disturbances. H. pylori, another infection that we didn't mention, because H. pylori likes low, very low acid. Yeah, so it could thrive yeah. when you lower its acid, right? It's one of its mechanisms of action. It lowers the acid in your stomach. It actually can be a side effect is hypochlorhydria because it's lowering your stomach acid. And therefore, it's very difficult to digest like tough proteins, like meats and things that need hydrochloric acid for digestion. That digestion is going to be compromised. Impaired nutrient absorption, increased symptoms of reflux. So here people think they're taking it for reflux. They think they have too much acid. They reduce the acid and then you can have increased symptoms of reflux kidney damage, liver damage, micronutrient deficiencies, even neurological complications. And get this one, rebound hypersecretion of stomach acid once you stop and UTIs is another possible side effect. So the odd thing is people think they're taking it because they have too much acid in the stomach, even though the acid belongs there, but they actually cause this maldigestion that can cause so many issues down the road and malabsorption as well. Now, if you really have an ulcer that is going to be irritated by the presence of hydrochloric acid, that could be, you know, the short-term use of PPIs, but really they're meant to be short-term and not long-term They because there was a big downside and they cause a lot of side effects. So yeah, I just urge people to go to the blog and then you can go to the references and resources and confirm for yourself or find even more information. We have a nice shared creative commons Graphic there in the blog and tells you a little bit more about all the different parts of the body that get affected by PPIs. So, this is a real concern. It should be a concern across all medical practices, or I like to call them health practices, just for people to be aware of. Yeah, they're not inconsequential, let's say.
0: Mm-hmm. I think, you know, one of the things that stands out to me is that they're now over the counter. So, there's zero. Physician accountability. Or, or, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> accountability. zero physician in involvement. Mm-hmm. So, what are people basing the need for taking these as its symptoms? Mm, and so, symptoms. when we look at the symptoms that people are presenting with, they don't have the background that we have and practitioners have of being able to look at those symptoms in the totality and, and having mm-hmm. other methods of being able to evaluate. Mm-hmm. And even before they were over the counter, they were still being prescribed without the necessary diagnosis. You know, I think there's something like the Heidelberg pH capsule test. I'm sure you're mm-hmm. familiar with that. Mm-hmm. You know, so this is a radio telemetry device that you can swallow and it measures and provides feedback on the pH data exactly. from the stomach. Mm-hmm. So you're mm-hmm. actually getting real time information on the acidity levels in the stomach. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, and I don't think it's available anymore, it was the gastric string test. I don't know if mm-hmm. you ever did that. I did hundreds and hundreds of these.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And if my memory serves me well, I never found anybody with hyperacidity.
1: I know it's not as common as they like to. It's think. not as common as you
0: think. So mm. what we were finding was typically you want your stomach pH to be between I think you know at least two, maybe yeah you know, between, between three and one. We yeah. were yeah. seeing five sixes, and I mm-hmm. mean I'm colorblind, so it was a little <laughs> hard for me sometimes to read. But even I could read that these guys were alkaline. So you yes. have an alkaline stomach and they're taking PPIs. It annoys uh. me because I feel like when you are taking something like that with as many adverse side effects and clinical conditions that are associated with these particular drugs, so guess what happens? And this is the serialization of pharmaceuticals. That's mm-hmm. why if you go to... Um, my mom doesn't take any pharmaceutical, mm-hmm. but you know, you go to uh, someone's house and, you, and sneak into their bathroom and open their medicine cabinet. <laughs> There's have. very rarely one amber bottle in there, right? There's uh-huh. very rarely one. It's usually two, three or four. Yeah. So they start to yeah. take a drug. Sorry, I'm going to get on my high horse here, but That's they start amazing. taking a drug and they start getting side effects. They go back to the prescribing physician who will now prescribe another drug to deal with the side mm-hmm. effects. you get another mm-hmm. one. And so before you know it, you're taking four or five. These four drugs have never been tested together. Mm-hmm. So you're a guinea pig. No wonder that we're in a health crisis here. Anyway, sorry.
1: I think so. No, it is. It's awareness. That's where you're providing people with awareness to even go and research for themselves to realize that this is true. This is, you know, observe and report. (laughs) This is what's happening. (laughs) Please do something about it. No matter what type of clinician you are, pay attention to this. Yeah, because you're causing a problem if these are used extensively. And again, like you said, too, interacting. They can interact very significantly with other drugs like thiazide diuretics certain Mm -hmm. antiplatelet medications. So yeah, there's a missing link there when people are on the medications, at least make sure that those medications aren't interacting and make sure those medications aren't depleting nutrients, right? Mm -hmm. Mm Drug-induced nutrient depletions. So yeah, yeah, we reach out to our pharmacists. Everybody just take a look at this. It's very important. And just, again, please research further and somehow incorporate this into your practice to account for these, you know, first do no harm, right? First do no harm. Everybody takes that position, but we just have to be aware. And I think this podcast is bringing awareness to practitioners.
0: I hope so. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the other part too is how do we recognize something like hyperchlorhydria? Because I think a lot of people have GI discomfort. Mm -hmm. So I think being able to diagnose or even evaluate from not just, you know, radio telemetry devices, which are obviously very expensive, but Mm-hmm. Looking at the patient history and the symptoms, you know, that's why I like questionnaires. It's like mm-hmm. looking at digestive types of questions, bloating, belching, mm-hmm. heartburn, indigestion. Mm-hmm. Do you have nutrient deficiencies? Mm-hmm. Doing a physical exam, getting your hands on patients, doing an abdominal examination, mm-hmm. looking for clinical signs of malnutrition or nutrient deficiencies. Mm-hmm. And there is lots of nutritional physicals that you can do as well. I think mm-hmm. I even have one okay. on, on, in my okay. trainings and things like that. And then looking at blood testing, look at gastrin levels, look at the CBC, look at serum b 12 levels, look at folate levels, look at iron levels, look at minerals, protein levels. I mean, that can be super helpful. And then if you really suspect that something like that is going on, yeah, see if you can find a clinic that does the Heidelberg if you really want. If you have one of those patients that's absolutely convinced that they're hyperacid and they can't live without their PPI,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: have them go swallow a Heidelberg capsule and see what happens so anyway yeah. then there's the <laughs> treatment side of it too right so oftentimes people's guts are really inflamed yes. and so they think oh i'm hyperacid was well, not it's low-grade gastritis that is often mm-hmm. caused by low stomach acid uh, exactly. they've got h pylori you can't just suddenly dump in a 600 milligram dose of betaine hcl and think that right. you're going to be cured. the person's right. going to scream at you You know, that's why I love some of the the companies that we use, because they've got formulas that are about helping to soothe and heal. It's the Mm demulcents, the deglycerinated licorice, the Mm -hmm. cabbage extract, and a biotics research has a good one, Uh, ginger, Mm -hmm. and things like Mm -hmm. that. So heal the gut, Mm -hmm. and then slowly, slowly, slowly start adding in some more acid, you know, even just doing some Mm -hmm. cider vinegar, and then doing a low-dose stomach acid replacement, you can titrate it, so... Lots, lots of stuff we can do.
1: It's effort, right? There really is effort on the part of the practitioner and on the part of the, I don't want to say patient, but the client, right? The mm-hmm. person that's seeking some medical uh, intervention. So it takes work. It's not just popping a pill, right? It's evaluation, yeah. it's follow-up, it's changing things. So it takes a little bit of effort, but I think there's a great reward at the yeah, end. Yeah, I
0: agree. Thank you, Beth, for doing oh, all your you. research. And Beth does a ton of Research writing for us. If you're interested in biomarkers, we are going through an in depth evaluation Mm. of, I don't know how many biomarkers we're looking at, Beth. It's like it's over 100, must be 150. (laughs) Because we're really interested in providing scientific validation for this approach of using ranges that are in an optimized zone for human physiology. And we know that standard reference ranges vary from city to city, state to state, country to country, there is no standardization of range. And therefore, I think it's really important that we do have this concept of of an ODX range or an optimal range of putting everything in an optimized zone. And so Beth is doing a really, really deep dive. I'm talking like submarine-style dive. <laughs> this isn't recreational snorkeling. This is... Uh, exactly. <laughs> just a hookah. Uh, not yet. <laughs> 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 so if you're interested in any of that, please come over to OptimalDx. Join our blog because that's where you're going to get all the latest information. And all of it is incorporated into the software. So if you're interested in evaluating patients' blood tests and getting a really comprehensive view of the trends of where your patient's headed, And then also take advantage of the treatment building that we're doing here at ODX Mm -hmm. as well, because it's not just about, oh, your blood glucose levels are too high. It's like, okay, so once we know that's happening, what can we do to Mm -hmm. correct, make the change and then retest? So we have a very robust treatment plan builder. We are working on expanding that to be, make it easier for you to build treatment plans, adding in diet lifestyle exercise at some point down the road. You know, we're really here to support you in your practice. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the important part. I'm, you know, Obviously, we could go after the general public, but I'm really committed and ODX is committed and best committed and my team yes. is committed to helping you, the practitioner, be yes. the most effective that you can be when you're working with your patients and clients. So that's what we're mm-hmm. doing at OptimalDX. We've got a very simple membership concept, 20 bucks a month, gets you access to the ODX platform. You can add in blood tests on a pay-as-you-go basis, or you can do an unlimited plan if you want. Great as many treatment plans were hooked in with Fullscript. And we're working on a whole scripts integration too with Zymogen. So we're doing a lot of really cool stuff. Plus, you get access to all of this great uh, research information. So thank you, Beth. Appreciate it.
1: Oh, You're welcome.
0: So uh, yeah, welcome. come on over to ODX and uh, we'll see you very, very soon. All right, everyone, take care.
1: Mm-hmm.